Welcome to the City Church Podcast. We hope that you will be abundantly blessed by this message. If you would like to find out more about the city, please log on to our website, www.thecity.sg. Good morning, City Church. What a joy and privilege for me to be able to bring you the Word of God this morning. And I want to thank Pastor Andre for giving me the privilege of speaking to you uh, this morning. Uh, COVID-19 has literally did a couple of things for us. One is to isolate people, but at the same time, it also brought us closer together. And what a joy it is for me to be able to speak to you all the way from Perth, uh, Western Australia. I want to bring to you a word that I've entitled, When Revival Comes. And it comes out of the text in Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 1 to 18. So let me read for you the text uh, this morning. Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 1 to 18. When the seventh month came and the Israelites have settled in their towns, all the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the Lord of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women who were able to understand. And he read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Ezra, the teacher of the law, stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. And beside him on his right stood the whole list of people whose names are very difficult to pronounce. And uh, there's a whole list of uh, Israelites that were there. And then verse 5 says, Ezra opened the book and all the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up. And Ezra praised the Lord, the great, the great God. And all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. And then they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The Levites instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. And they read from the book of the Lord of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people understood what was being read. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest, and the teacher of the law, and the Levites, who were instructing the people, said to them all, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not moan or weep. For all the people have been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. And Nehemiah said, Now go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks, and then send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And the Levites calm all the people, saying, Be still, for this is a holy day, and do not grieve. Then all the people went away to eat and drink and to send portions of food and to celebrate with great joy, because they now know and understood the words that have been made known to them. On the second day of the month, the heads of all the families, along with the priests and the Levites, gathered around Ezra the teacher to give attention to the words of the law. And they found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded through Moses, that the Israelites Israelites were to live in temporary shelters during the festival of the seventh month, which is the Feast of Tabernacles. And then they should proclaim this word and spread it throughout their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out into the hill country, bring back branches from olive and wild olive trees and from myrtles, palms and shade trees to make temporary shelters as it is written. 
So the people went out and they brought back branches and they built themselves temporary shelters on their own roofs, in their courtyards and in the courts of the house of God and in the square by the water gate and the one by the gate of Ephraim. The whole company that had returned from exile built temporary shelters and lived in them. From the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, until that day, the Israelites have not celebrated it like this and their joy was very great. So day after day, after the first day to the last, Ezra read from the book of the Lord of God and they celebrated the festival for seven days and on the eighth day, in accordance with the regulations, there was an assembly. So let's bow and let's talk to the Word before I talk to you about the Word. Let's pray. Father, I pray that in Jesus' name, you open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your scripture. And may your word speak to us this morning and your word instruct us and then transform us. So we commit this time of sharing to you now. Anoint your servant so that I may speak with clarity, with simplicity, but also with authority. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Nehemiah chapter 8 actually talks about a great revival during the time of Nehemiah. Now by this time, the temple of God has been rebuilt under Ezra, the high priest. The walls of Jerusalem were already completed under Nehemiah, the leader. And the homes of the Israelites have begun to come up within the city walls. In other words, all the infrastructure and the system of government is already in place. But here's the thing, despite its apparent orderliness, Nehemiah knew that there was still something missing. Now he could still sense the presence of a spiritual vacuum amongst the people. And herein is already a lesson for all of us. Now we may have a beautiful church building, well-organized structure, we have strategic management, elaborate programs going on in the church, but despite this massive infrastructure, we could still be a pathetic imitation of the glorious church that Jesus Jesus Christ is coming back to receive. Isn't that right? You know, at the end of the day, we all know that structure determines size, but it is the spirit that determines success. The church of Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, is ultimately a spiritual house. And to be a house of God, the life of God must descend. The dry bones must come alive. The altars of our heart must be on fire. The rain of God must fall and the wind of revival must blow. And when the winds of revival begin to blow over the people, of God, we will begin to see tangible signs of revival. See, every time revival comes and every time revival visits the body of Christ, we see tangible signs of revival. And here in Nehemiah chapter 8, in this glorious revival that took place uh, during the time of Israel, uh, there are three signs of revival that was outlined for us here in Nehemiah chapter 8 that I want to draw our attention to. Okay, and then we ask ourselves, is the wind of revival blowing across our congregation? Now, here are the three signs of revival from Nehemiah chapter 8. Number one is this, whenever the wind of God is blowing, we will see a return to the assembling of God's people. A return to the assembling of God's people. Throughout church history, Whenever there is a revival, we will see lost sheep beginning to flock back to the fold. We see backslidden Christians beginning to slide back to the church as it were. Now one good gauge, one good indicator of the level of our spiritual passion is our desire to be amongst God's people. Isn't that right? You know, when our hearts are cold, when our hearts are straying, one of the first signs will be this, we become uncomfortable in the presence of fiery hot Christians. 
you know, when, when our hearts are cold, we don't want to be around people who are, who are on fire because they are too hot to handle. You know, we feel almost like an uninsured man walking into an insurance conference full of passionate, thousands of passionate insurance agents. And then how do we feel? We feel really uncomfortable, isn't it? We feel out of place because we, we feel like we don't belong. But when a man is on fire, we long to be amongst the people of God. We love to talk about the things of God. We want to be involved in the work of God. Is that right? And brothers and sisters, ladies and gentlemen, when you find yourself giving excuses for not wanting to come to a celebration service or to a cell group or to attend a prayer meeting, watch out. You know, because something could be going astray in hearts. See, in, in all my travels, I constantly would come across people who would ask me a question like this. They would ask me, Pastor, can I be a Christian and not join the church? Can I be a Christian and not join the church? Have you heard that before? You know, my standard answer to them would be this. Yes, it is possible. But you will be like a student who refused to go to school. You'll be like a soldier who won't join an army. You're like a citizen with no country. You're like a salesman who has nothing to sell. You know, you're like a politician with no party. You're like a trombone player without an orchestra. The only sound you can make is paw, paw, paw. You know, you're like a naslamat with no chili. You know, something is missing. Something is just not right. Can I be a Christian and not be a part of the church? Something is not sitting well. Uh, the best way I can put it, if you learn nothing from this sermon, learn this. The banana that leaves the bunch gets eaten. <laughs> Don't forget this. A banana that leaves the bunch gets eaten. Nobody ever eat bananas by the bunch, right? What do we do? We want to eat the banana. The first thing you do, you detach it from the bunch. And then you take your time to peel it. And then you eat it, you see. So what's my point? My point is this. The man who isolates himself from the body of Christ put himself in spiritual danger. And that's what the devil likes to do. He wants us to isolate ourselves. And when we isolate ourselves from the body of Christ, that's when the devil would, would skin you. And then he will eat you up for dinner. And that's the reason why, brothers and sisters, we must belong to a cell group. You must belong to a small group somewhere where you can be held accountable and we can hold each other accountable and we journey together in the pursuit of God. You see, when we could together forge a biblical community and then together we can reach out to people far away from God. See, and here in Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 1, the Bible tells us this, when the wind of revival began to blow over Israel, all the people exempted as one man in the square before the water gate. You see, when the winds of revival begin to blow, the Israelites came as one man before the Lord. There is a return to the exempting of God's people. There's a regathering of the body. I think about the early church in Acts chapter 2, verse 42 to 47, when, when the winds of revival were blowing in the early church. Now, this is what happened. It said, tell us in Acts 2, verse 42 onwards, every day they continue to meet in the temple courts. Everybody say, every day. That's right. It, well, they were meeting every day. And then they broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God, enjoying the favour of all 
all the people. And then the Lord added to the numbers daily. Everybody say daily. That's right. Every day they were gathering. And then the Lord added to the numbers daily those who were being saved. I have a feeling that during those days in the early church, when the apostles stood up and announced to the people that this weekend we're going to have another meeting, everybody will shout hallelujah. Today, the pastor get up and tell you, we're going to have another meeting this weekend. Everybody say, ayah, <laughs> another meeting. Why? I tell you why, because the winds of revival were blowing across that congregation. The people were eager to meet daily, every day. They meet in the temple courts, broke bread, ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God, and people were being added daily, those who were being saved. Whenever the winds of revival blow, there's a, a, there's a return to the assembling of God's people. I think about the Reformation under Martin Luther, where we see the people coming back to a church that's alive with truth. Remember the Wesley brothers of the Methodist revival, where we see people gathered in class meetings all over England, seeking to live sanctified lives. I've personally gone through the charismatic renewal in the 70s, in the 80s, in, in Asia, where we see people returning to a church that is alive in the Spirit. And this is what we read in the revival also under King Hezekiah in the Old Testament. Second Chronicles 29, verse 3. Listen to this one. In the first month of the first year of his reign. First month of the first year, which means what? Priority. That's when the moment King Hezekiah came to the throne, the first thing he did was this. He opened the doors of the temple of the Lord. You see, he, and, and when this good king came to the throne, the first thing he wanted to do, open the doors of the temple so that the people can gather again. Sooner or later, brothers and sisters, revival always creates a rush for seats in the house of God. And when the winds of revival starts to blow, every seat in this house will be filled. And why not? Because after all, the local church is the most powerful institution on the face of this earth. Do you know, brothers and sisters, you belong to the most powerful institution on the face of this earth. You belong to the only institution that is going to last through time and eternity. Not even marriages are going to last beyond it beyond this life, but the church of Jesus Christ, will, the bride of Christ will always be there. It is the most powerful institution on the face of this earth. And let me tell you this, there was a Rotary Club meeting, right? And it's a true story I was told. During a Rotary Club meeting, all the members, the new members were asked to stand and say something about their job. What they didn't know was that the local church pastor in that area actually joined the Rotary Club and he was present. So they turned to him and they asked him, tell us a bit about your work. And the pastor stood up and they asked him, are you sure? They said, yeah, tell us what you do. Tell us a bit about your work. And so the pastor stood up and this is what he said. And he, what, he said it so well, I'm going to read it verbatim uh, for you. This is what the pastor said. He, he stood up and he said, 
I'm with a global enterprise. We have branches in every country in the world. We have our representatives in every government and every boardroom on earth. We run hospitals, universities, schools, soup kitchens, publishing houses, nursing homes, radio and TV stations. We care for our clients all the way from birth to death and even beyond. And by the way, all our products are free because after all, no one can afford to buy it. We do life insurance and fire insurance. We perform heart transplant and we do the ultimate complete makeover. Our founding chairman owns all the real estate on earth plus an assortment of planets, galaxies and constellations. He lives everywhere. He knows everything and everybody. Our CEO, however, is born in a small town, worked as a carpenter, never owned a home, was misunderstood by his family, hated by his enemies, but he walked on water and he was condemned to death without a trial, but he rose from the dead. Now, you may ask me, how do I know? Because I report to him every morning. <laughs> no, that's the local church, isn't it? And no wonder Bill Hybers once said this, there is nothing like the local church when it is working right. You see, when revival comes to town, the Spirit of God will stir up the hearts of His people. A spiritual hunger will begin to ferment and people will beat a line back to the church where the bread of life, hallelujah, will be freely given. And this brings me to the second thing in a revival. Number one, there'll be a return to the assembling of God's people. But number two, there'll be a restoration of the Word of God. You know, one Bible scholar made this note. He said, it is significant that in this chapter on revival, the people gathered at the water gate, since water is a picture of the Word of God. Before we ask God for a revival, we must first be re -bibled. Before we ask God for a revival, we must first be re-bibled. In Nehemiah chapter 8, we see the people beginning to restore honour to the Word of God. Can you picture the scene that we just read earlier in Nehemiah chapter 8? The people were gathered as one man in eager expectation. And the Word of God was attributed a high place on a raised platform. They built a platform just for the reading of the Word. Ezra the priest appeared, you know, with the book of the law. And you've got to understand that the book of the law for the last 13 years have not been read. But Ezra took it out and he began to bring it before the people. There was an awesome silence as Ezra stepped up to the pulpit. And he opened the scriptures slowly. And the people, the Bible tells us, spontaneously stood to their feet. Nobody told them to stand. They all stood up. For what? In honour of the word of the Lord. See, and then Ezra began to read. He read strongly, purposefully, clearly. He read and he read and he read. And the Bible tells us he never stopped reading from morning all the way till noon. Now, if you think that is amazing, what is even more amazing is that the people were listening attentively. And we're talking about the Pentateuch. We're talking about the, the books that Moses wrote, now, Deuteronomy and books like that. And they were listening and attentively and then they were responding enthusiastically, shouting, Amen, Amen. And the Word of God was like water washing through the crowd, you know, washing them through and through. 
You know, some of us need to do that. Some of us read long passages of Scripture every day. You're like taking a bath in God's Word. That is amazing. But some of us will read short passages uh, every day. That's like taking a shower. Now, some of us just dry clean, you know, one verse a day keeps the devil away. Then some, maybe even worse, you know, we come together once a week for a common bath. You know, just come together once a week, have a common bath, Japanese style. But that day in Nehemiah chapter 8, the people were literally having a spa in the Word of God. And then gifted teachers begin to teach the word line upon line, precept upon precept. They instructed the people in making the word clear. And with understanding came strong conviction. And that is why the people begin to weep in repentance as they hear the word of the living God. And the winds of revival was blowing across the people. I want you to understand this. The winds of revival can sweep masses of people back to the church, but only the Word of God can sustain the revival. And this has been proven true throughout historical revivals. Do you know that the revival in Wales, which is one of the most powerful revivals, right, uh, under Evan Roberts, it started so powerfully but there was also a great number that fell away after the peak of the revival around 1904. You know why? Because the centrality of the preaching of God's Word began to give way to unusual events and uh, supernatural manifestations like in, in, angelic sightings, you know, dreams, visions, etc. Now, please don't get me wrong. I believe we need more of that. We need more of the supernatural in our churches. We need more of, uh, of dreams, visions, and, and signs and wonders and miracles. We need more of that, but not at the expense of the preaching of God's Word. And after a while, what happened in the Evan Roberts revival was the Word of God was neglected. And then the winds of revival begin to die down. Today, if you go back to Wales, the church is only a shadow of what it used to be during the revival. But on the contrary, you look at revivals under Whitfield, under Wesley, under Spurgeon. They continued much longer because biblical preaching was at the center of the revival. But here in Nehemiah, we see a mighty restoration of the Word of God. And I suggest to you, brothers and sisters, this is what we need in our nation today. If we want to see our nation transform, we need a restoration of the Word of God. Because this is the key to the transformation of cities and nations. I'll give you an example. How many of you have been to Geneva before? Now, if you've been to Geneva, you tell me, what is Geneva famous for? Uh, immediately, what will come to mind? It will be International Red Cross, for example, right? It is the place, well, it's the headquarters of the International Red Cross. It is the birthplace of Rolex. It's the birthplace of quality watches like Patek Philippe. You know, this is what Geneva is famous for uh, today. But it has not always been like that. Do you know that? In Geneva's history, at one time, it was famous for the wrong thing. It was famous because it is the smelliest city in Europe. There's a river that runs through uh, the center of Geneva, and all the down and outs, and you know, all the people who are the, the poor and the dis marginalized, and all the people, the criminals, they all parked themselves along this river. They did everything there. And but as a result, this river was, became so smelly that, that Geneva actually became the smelliest city in Europe until one man 
came along. And his name was John Kelvin, the founder of Systematic Theology. John Kelvin began to preach the Word of God and teach the Word of God systematically to his city. Started a church there. And the word of, in the Word of God, he taught the, the people about things like usury, being a sin, you know, lending, lending money with high interest rates and all of that. That is a sin in the sight of God. He talks about work ethics. He shared with them what the Bible says about discipline, about diligence, about all these things. And then he was the one that, that began to educate the city and, and they begin to understand that, do you know that Geneva kept their interest rates, their bank interest at about 4% for as long as 20 years because they understood that lending with high interest rate is not the right thing to do. And they kept interest rate at 4% for 20 years. And 4% is a tremendous, uh, tremendously useful interest rate to keep because it is high enough so that people who save can get something out of it, but yet low enough so that people can borrow and still be able to do feasible business, you see. And as a result, the city began to change the economy began to turn. And before you know it, Geneva was transformed to what it is today. But how did it all begin? It all began because of a man who is convicted about the truth of God's Word. And he preached it and taught it and to his people intentionally, systematically. And that changed a city. There is only one great issue. That is to get the truth of the Bible into the hearts of the people. And if we do not saturate our homes, our nation, our families with God's Word, then our social media, our TV, our movies, you know, our internet will saturate them with the philosophies of this world. And church, I challenge you today, let us restore honour back to the Word of God. Let us take this Word of life, admit it to be the truth, commit it to our hearts, submit ourselves to it, and then we transmit it to the world. And that will be the beginning of an old-time Holy Ghost revival. When the winds of revival begin to blow across our churches, across our cities, we will see a return to the exembling of God's people. We will see a restoration of the Word of God. And I'll leave you one last thing. We will see a rediscovery of the Feast of Tabernacles. We will see a rediscovery of the Feast of tabernacles. You see, as the Israelites look intently into the word in Nehemiah chapter 8, the next thing they did was to reinstate the feast of tabernacles. Now, the scripture actually tells us that they have not been celebrating the feast of tabernacles in this way since the time of Joshua. And I think it's very, very significant that in the context of revival, this particular feast of tabernacles was mentioned. Now, to fully appreciate this, we need to understand the prophetic significance of this feast. The Feast of Tabernacles is recorded for us in details in Leviticus 23. Now, this is a feast that the Israelites would celebrate in order to remind themselves of how God took care of them while they were in the wilderness. Now, during that time, of the, uh, during the time of this feast, the Israelites were, right up to today, the Israelites would actually come out of their homes and they live in tents or booths that are made of palm leaves. Okay, and, and today, if you go back to Israel around September, you will see the, the people of, of, of God actually doing that. They actually come out of their homes and they build tents with palm uh, leaves and they actually live in it for seven days and seven nights. Uh, then, then there'll be seven mornings of symbolic 
public celebration with music and song and dance. And this is probably the best time to visit uh, Israel because that's a time where there's lots of celebration. And typically what will happen is that the high priest would then lead the people in a great marching procession uh, to the pool of Shalom. He'll lead them all the way to the pool of Shalom, which is mentioned in the Bible. And the priest will have in his hand a golden pitcher. And when he reached the poor Shalom, what the priest would do is take this golden pitcher and he would scoop water out of it. And then after that, he will interestingly lead the people back to the temple with, with this water. And as he lead the people back to the temple, interestingly, they will pass through the water gate and then into the temple. And what the priest would do is he would take this golden pitcher and he pours that water out in front of the altar. And, this, and when he does that, the people will raise an amazing shout of joy to the Lord. Why? Because this water that is being poured out symbolized the rain that God would send to them in His mercy during the wilderness, right? Where, where would they get water? God would send them. And when, remember that Israel is an agricultural land. It's, it's, the, it's a agrarian society. And has it not been for, for rain that God would send, they would not survive. See, and, and so this, the, as the priest pours out this water, the people raise a shout of joy to the Lord. And then we are reminded of Isaiah chapter 12, verse 3, where the prophet says, With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Now, listen, brothers and sisters, herein is the greatest significance of the Feast of Tabernacles for us this morning. It is about the seasonal rain that God sent to Israel. Now, we must remember that Israel is an agricultural nation and there are two seasons of rain that coincides with two periods of harvest. If you look at this little picture that I'm going to show you, there are two seasons of rain in Israel every year. One is what they call the former rain or the, uh, the summer rain. And then there's a latter rain, which is a spring rain. Okay, the former rain will come around April and the spring rain will come around September. And when these rains come, it coincides with the... When the former rain comes, it coincides with the Feast of Pentecost. And that is when the people of Israel will harvest the fruit of the corn, wheat and barley. But in the latter rain in September, uh, which it will coincide with the Feast of Tabernacles. And that's when they will harvest uh, the fruit, the wine and the oil. So these are the seasonal rains of, uh, of Israel. Now, all the rain here speaks of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit as in the book of Joel, in the book of Hosea, in the book of James. I'll give you an example. In James chapter 5, verse 7, in the context of the end times, the Apostle James said this, Be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield his valuable crop and how patient he is for the autumn and spring rains or the early and latter rain. Now, in relation to the Lord's coming, James actually spoke about the former and the latter rain. You go to Joel chapter 2. You read verses 21 to 27. You know, the passage talks about the former rain, how the former rain will be given. And, and this coincides actually with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost upon the early church. And this is also the time when the Jews were celebrating the Feast of Pentecost. See, and Joel also prophesied that the day will come when the Lord will send both the former and the latter rain in abundant showers. And this points us to the Feast of Tabernacles. 
and with that awesome outpouring you know, of the Holy Spirit upon all flesh, our sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will begin to see vision. Old men will dream dreams. And all this speaks prophetically of a mighty outpouring of the Spirit of God in the last days. And I assure you, brothers and sisters, the day is coming where mighty signs and wonders will follow. Mighty signs and wonders will happen across the face of the earth. And along with that outpouring, there's going to be a mighty ingathering of the fruit of the land. See? And I think there's going to be a mighty harvest of souls worldwide, including the mega cities and the 1040 window. Hallelujah. You cannot help it when the winds of revival begin to blow evangelism will just take place spontaneously and brothers and sisters i believe you and i are living in the days of the latter rain over the last decade or so we have seen mighty outpourings of the spirit all over the world do you know, brothers and sisters, that today, spiritual birth rate, according to Operation World, spiritual birth rate today is three times that of physical birth rate. Which means what? Which means that for every child that is born physically, three are born again spiritually. The kingdom of God is advancing. It's not retreating. It's just we don't realize it. That's all. But I believe the kingdom of God is advancing. It's like Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I think this is only the beginning of what God is going to multiply globally. But in each and every case where you see an outpouring, where you see revivals taking place, whether it's China or in Africa, I want you to know this. You will find this principle at work. And the principle is this. The people are rediscovering the person and the power of the Holy Spirit. There's a spiritual celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles. And I believe, brothers and sisters, this is where God is going to take us. Because without the Holy Spirit, without the power of the Spirit, we all end up like guitars with no string. You can't make any sound. We, if the church don't have the power of the Holy Spirit, we are like pen with no ink. We are like cars with no engine. We are like spaghetti with no sauce. There's no oom. There's no power. And we become powerless. We become flat, you see. And I believe that when the wind of revival begin to blow across our churches, across our city, we will see a regathering. There's a return to the assembling of God's people. There's a restoration of the Word of God. And then there's a rediscovery of the person and the power of the Holy Spirit. And how many of you agree that without the Holy Spirit, without the power of the Spirit, without the Word of God, and without the com biblical community, we will not see discipleship take place in the body of Christ. Now let's take for a moment this morning, just think in terms of discipleship, and, and with this I will end. Now, if I were to ask you today, what is the end goal of discipleship? If there's one word that you can use to signify the, the end goal of discipleship, what would it be? I think it was John Stott, the great, the late great English uh, theologian, who actually coined just in the end, he boiled it down to one word, and I would agree, and that's the word Christ-likeness. I think the end goal of discipleship is when we are conformed to the image of his son. And I think we all agree, Christ's likeness is the ultimate goal of our discipleship. Now, question is this, how do we get here? 
Now, one good way of coming to that will be to work backwards, okay? And here's what I mean. If in order to become Christ-like, we need to experience transformation, right? We need to experience transformation. But how can we, you know, Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2 says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed. Okay, but how? How, do, how does one experience transformation unless we apply God's Word? Right? We apply God's Word. Right? Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed. How? Through the renewing of our mind, which is through the Word of God. But how can we apply God's Word if we don't know what God, God's Word says? And therefore, we need to take time to study and to take time to spend with God in prayer, etc. And this is where we must be practicing the spiritual disciplines. So that's the next. It's the spiritual disciplines that enable us to know God's Word and to pray God's Word and so that we can apply His Word. Okay, so the spiritual discipline. Now, all of us also know that, yes, we need to, we need to be practicing the spiritual disciplines in our life, right? The time we spend with God, etc. But often, we also know this is the thing that is very easy to start, but very difficult to continue. And most people struggle with this. You know? And how do we sustain this unless, to you, the spiritual discipline is a delight? that to you is a spiritual delight. Who are the people who could actually sustain the spiritual discipline? It's not those who have to do it, but those who want to do it. That to you, spending time with God, reading the Bible, prayer, is actually a spiritual delight. Okay, and we all know that this there is no spiritual delight unless we first have a spiritual hunger. Okay, and we all understand that. Uh, this is something that spiritual hunger is something that you cannot generate. You either have it or you don't. Okay, and people who are hungry, they will actually pursue and they will find that spiritual things is a delightful thing. And as a result, they can practice the spiritual discipline. And we all know that. Okay, and this spiritual hunger is something you cannot generate. It's either there or it's not there. And how, how is it ever present? Unless, where does it come from? There is only one source for spiritual hunger, and that is from the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who, who actually imparts to us that spiritual hunger. See, and the more you are like Christ, the more dependent you are on the Holy Spirit. And then it becomes a powerful cycle that actually keeps us on the pathway of transformation towards Christ-likeness. And and we all can identify with this, isn't it? Now, the thing is, you know, for the longest time, the Church of Jesus Christ almost, you can almost carve it up this way. You can divide the church into these two portions. You know, there is one part of the church that is very, very focused on the spiritual disciplines, applying God's Word, going for transformation in order to become like Christ. These are the people that are very focused on the Word. Okay, but there's another sector of the church that is very dependent or, or their focus is primarily on the Holy Spirit, you know, creating that spiritual hunger and having that passion for God and, and having the, that great delight that every time they come, they will laugh, they will fall on the ground and they have awesome times in the Spirit, you see. And I think that sometimes the church is squarely divided into these two portions. 
Uh, then there's one group that is so dependent on the word, but and they emphasize a lot in the spiritual disciplines, but it can also become very driving, uh, very hard going, as it were. And, and sometimes I think it can end up becoming quite legalistic. But on the other hand, you have those that are so, so uh, caught up with the hype and the excitement of just creating uh, wonderful moments of encounters, but yet without the foundation of the Word of God. Now, I want to suggest to you that this church need not choose between the Word and the Spirit but we can have both the Word and the Spirit because the Word without the Spirit, we will dry up. The Spirit without the Word, we can blow up, but the Word and the Spirit together, we can literally grow up and become more and more like Jesus. And I want to challenge you to actually become a Word and Spirit church where we can have the strong foundation of the Word of God, but at the same time, a great dependence on the power of the Holy Spirit. I don't know about you, but without the power of the Holy Spirit, we will just end up trying to do things in our own strength, trying to apply God's Word in our own strength, but we cannot get there. You know, in my own journey as a Christian, the day when I was baptized and filled with the Holy Spirit, that was a turning point in my life. Prior to that, all I was trying to do is to practice a spiritual discipline and it was so hard going. There are times when I just want to give up, you know, but the day when I got filled with the power of the Spirit, suddenly there's a whole spiritual hunger that came. Now I read the Word not because I have to, I read it because I want to. It's not just about a discipline, it has become a delight and it takes the power of the Holy Spirit. And I, am, I cannot run away from this. In my own experience, what I found is this, you know, that before, before that, you know, it's like, um, and before I got filled with the Holy Spirit, it's like I got bad habits in my life that I have to deal with. Then I try to make resolution every year to get rid of these habits. But I found, try as I would, I take away the H, I still got a bit. I take away the B, I still got bit. I take away the B, I still got it. You know, it just, I can't break through this. You know, I try to kill the I, I won't succeed. What I need to do, look to the cross and then the eye will exit. That's the key. I, we cannot live this Christian life in our own strength. We cannot live this Christian life using our own self-effort. At the end of the day, we need to look to the cross and what the cross has accomplished for us and what Jesus did on the cross is not just to take away our sin, he took away our compulsion to sin, but He also gave us the great compulsion of the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit fills us and anoints us, that's where we find the breakthrough. Brothers and sisters, there is no revival until there is a fresh discovery of the person, the power of the Holy Spirit, until there's a restoration of the Word of God in our life, and until we forge a biblical community that is devoted to the Word and the Spirit. And I want to challenge you today that would you come to the Lord and make a fresh commitment to become a Word and Spirit people. So would you bow your heads with me for just a few moments this morning? Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. I want to encourage you this morning to just make a fresh resolve in your heart 
to commit ourselves to these three things. That number one, we will never neglect the coming together of the body of Christ. Whenever the winds of revival begin to blow, there will be a return to the assembling of God's people. Let's make a fresh resolve. Never to miss the gathering of God's people we, because we need a biblical community in order to grow towards discipleship. Secondly, we will say, God, I want to return to your word. There must be a mighty restoration of the word of God in our personal life, in the life of the corporate church. We need to take the word of God, admit it to be the truth, commit it into our hearts, submit to it in our lifestyle, and then we transmit it to the world. And we cannot do this unless we have a fresh discovery of the person and power of the Holy Spirit. And my prayer for you as we close this morning is that you will become a word and spirit people. So let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your precious word this morning that it can instruct us. I pray that you, uh, as this congregation rises to become a biblical community, that you will make them a people committed to your word and dependent on your Holy Spirit. Lord, we make a fresh resolve this morning that we will become a people of the word and the spirit. Draw us daily to your precious word so that we will not only read it, but we will apply it in our lives. And we do it not by our own strength, but we do it by the power of your Holy Spirit. So fill us afresh this morning. Fill us afresh with the power of your Holy Spirit so that daily the Spirit will draw us to your word so that we can hear what you want to say to your people. Thank you, Lord. And as we commit to do this, we pray that your Holy Spirit will guide us and direct us and empower us and take us to that point where we will become a people of the Word and the Spirit. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Amen.